Jeremiah chapter 32, beginning in verse 1, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the tenth year of Zedekiah, the king of Judah, which was the eighteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar. For then the king of Babylon's army besieged Jerusalem and Jeremiah the prophet was shut up in the court of the prison and was in the king of Judah's house. For Zedekiah, king of Judah, had shut him up, saying, why do you prophesy and say, thus says the Lord, behold, I will give this city into the hand of the king of Babylon and he shall take it. And Zedekiah, king of Judah, shall not escape from the hand of the Chaldeans, but shall surely be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon and shall speak with him face to face and see him eye to eye. Literally, it says mouth to mouth. <laughs> Then he shall lead Zedekiah to Babylon, and there he shall be until I visit him, says the Lord. Though you fight with the Chaldeans, you shall not succeed. And Jeremiah said, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, will come to you, saying, Buy my field, which is in Anathoth, for the right of redemption is yours to buy it. Then Hanamel, my uncle's son, came to me in the court of the prison, according to the word of the Lord, and said to me, Please, buy my field that is in Anathoth, which is in the country of Benjamin, for the right of inheritance is yours and the redemption yours. Buy it for yourself. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. So I bought the field from Hanamel the son of my uncle who was in Anathoth, and weighed out to him in to him the money, 17 shekels of silver. And I signed the deed and sealed it, took witnesses and weighed the money on the scales. So I took the purchase deed, both that which was sealed according to the law and custom and that which was open. And I gave the purchase deed to Baruch, the son of Neriah, the son of Messiah, in the presence of Hanamel, my uncle's son, and in the presence of the witnesses who signed the purchase deed before all the Jews who sat in the court of the prison. Then I charged Baruch before them, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Take these deeds, both this purchase deed, which is sealed, and this deed, which is open, and put them in an earthen vessel, that they may last many days. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall be possessed again in this land. We're going to pause. We come to another major division in the book of Jeremiah. He finds himself, as usual, in prison for preaching and prophesying. As you can gather, his preaching and his prophecy have not been met with enthusiasm. But even in prison, God uses the prophet. The Lord commands Jeremiah to purchase a field as a sign and a symbol of the future. 
The Lord then gives Jeremiah promises about Judea and about Judea's future. When I was reading this story, I was reminded of many of the things that have been happening in our community this last week. And, and my, my thoughts went back over 10 years ago. Some of you are familiar with Paul Harvey. Paul Harvey is that guy who, you know, he, he talks about the rest of the story. Paul Harvey was from the, the Mideast, or the, the Midwest, I should say. He was born in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and he was a radio guy. And at the age of 80, he signed a 10-year contract to ABC for $100 million. I know you thought Peyton Manning, ooh, you know, 90 mil. Here's, here's Paul Harvey. At 80 years old, with the enthusiasm and encouragement, he's thinking, I'm here and I'm going to live and I'm going to live my life like it really matters. He damaged his vocal cords. One year into the contract. Let his vocal cords rest. And he continued to speak in 2001, in 2002, in 2005. Paul Harvey received the Presidential Medal of Freedom. He continued to broadcast to to the age of 88 in April of 2008. Because every morning he woke up with the confident expectation that God was going to use him that day. With each generation, there comes a fresh challenge. Can God use me in the circumstance that I find myself in? What does it mean to have faith in God? And what does it mean to trust God for the future? And by the way, one of the main themes of this chapter is the fact that God is the God who inhabits not only the past and not only the present, but the future. He occupies eternity. And even though you may not know where you're going, and even though you may be uncertain about your future, God is already there and he's already prepared a place for you. Once again, Jeremiah is called to be a living parable. He's going to have to act out the lessons that God wants to teach for every generation. By the way, the legal and the financial details of this transaction of property is interesting, but it's recorded not for the purpose of stimulating our historian's interest in the details of what it meant to be a mortgage broker in in the, in the 7th century B.C. It's in order for you to understand and believe the reality that God is going to make good on his promises. So it begins with a confident faith in dire distress. Look again at verse 1. It says, The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the tenth year of Zedekiah, the king of Judah, which was the eighteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar. One of the problems that we have with the book of Jeremiah is it's not in chronological order. It doesn't begin, go to the middle, and then go to the end. As a matter of fact, in this portion of Jeremiah, 
we understand that there are several Babylonian campaigns that take place. Nebuchadnezzar has gone through Palestine in 604. After the battle of Carchemish, he comes back and he besieges Jerusalem in 599 BC. He's going to eventually come back in 587 BC and attack the city. And it is going to collapse under the weight of its iniquity and judgment. And it's eventually going to come to an end. Here... In the 10th year of Zedekiah, in the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar, remember, they don't date things the way we date, date things. They don't say, you know, the year 2000 or the year 2012. They, they date things according to the ruler or the leader of whatever occupation you happen to be under. So if we were to put it in modern terms, we would say, in the third year of Barack Hussein Obama's presidency. Instead of 2012. Dateline. 587 BC. That's what's on your chronology. It says in verse 2. For then the king of Babylon's army besieged Jerusalem. And Jeremiah the prophet was shut up in the court of the prison. Which was in the king of Judah's house. Things could hardly be worse. There's a grim siege. And by the way, the siege is described in Jeremiah chapter 38. It'll go into details of the siege. And for some, this will create confusion, like I said, because the writings of Jeremiah are not in chronological order. We happen to be in the second year of the siege. We know that from Jeremiah chapter 39, verse 1. All around Jerusalem, to the far north, all of the surrounding circumstances, all of the cities have fallen under the weight of the Babylonian invasion. Jerusalem is on the precipice of collapse. Now, I also want to point out to you that there's a brief, brief moment of reprieve. The Babylonian army has been encamped all around Jerusalem. But all of a sudden, out of nowhere, from Carchemish and Egypt to the south, an army starts marching north to try to deliver Jerusalem from the hands of the Babylonians. So... In the second year of the Babylonian siege, the armies of Nebuchadnezzar pull up stakes and they begin marching south to meet the oncoming Egyptian army. There's a lull. And in this lull, Jeremiah is in prison. The charges? Treason. Jeremiah continues to preach God's judgment against the city and the people of Jerusalem because of Israel's sin and because of their rebellion. God was using the Babylonian kingdom as an instrument of his judgment. So Jeremiah is not in a maximum security, but he's in what we might call a place of restriction and limitation and confinement. But he really is in prison. It says in verse 3, for Zedekiah, the king of Judah, had shut him up, saying, Why do you prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will give the city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall take it. Why, why is he doing that? Why is he talking this smack? Because it's true, isn't it? They're on the verge of judgment. Because it's true that God is going to visit them with judgment because it's true that their sin has finally found them out 
Because it's true that in spite of all of the painful, repeated warnings, they've refused to obey. And in verse 4, it says, And Zedekiah, the king of Judah, shall not escape from the hand of the Chaldeans. This is another name for the Babylonians. But shall surely be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon. And shall speak with him mouth to mouth, it says. Um, in Italian, face a face, face to face. And see him eye to eye. In other words, you're not going to get out of this. You are going to come to grips. And you are going to be captured. And you are going to be delivered. Not Metaphorically and not allegorically, but literally, then he shall lead Zedekiah to Babylon and there he shall be until I visit him. It's kind of a mysterious statement. What do you mean, Lord? Visit him. How? I'm going to suggest to you. That it probably means. Where you come to grips with the fact that everything that Jeremiah has said is true. That the punishment and the discipline that's taking place is true. And that you come to that place where you realize my life is over and the only thing I have left to do is to meet God. It says, though you fight with the Chaldeans, you shall not succeed. The implication being, I'm going to resist and I'm going to resist and I am going to resist, but The prophecy is no matter how hard you resist, you won't succeed. The application and the principle. Can you resist God? Can you resist the plan of God? Can you resist the purposes of God? Can you resist the future that God has planned for you? You really can't. Jeremiah has confronted them. That's the idea. Both king and officials. And I think that we live in a world where over and over again, God wants to talk to us. You're you're driving down the road and you make the mistake of turning on Christian radio and all of a sudden God starts speaking to you. So you decide to switch to, to music and all of a sudden the worship song begins to convict you about your condition. Over and over again, God is looking for a reason to speak to you. Think about this for just a moment. In what way will God visit Zedekiah? To release the king, not from bondage, but through death. Jeremiah is in prison. It's in the second year of the siege. I'm going to suggest to you that everyone in the city is panicked. And they're starting to starve. If they're not already starving, they're close to it. People are dying in the city because of the prolonged siege. People are doing whatever is necessary to keep from starving. The city has been surrounded by a brutal enemy. The cost of being faithful to God and communicating God's message is starting to take its toll. Even on Jeremiah. Knowing God's will and doing God's will will sometimes place you in a position of discomfort. Well, God, all I want to do is what you want me to do. How come I'm in such big trouble? Do you know what? You might be in trouble with your husband or your wife, or you might be in trouble with the nation. You might be in trouble with the culture. You might be in trouble with a lot of people under a lot of different circumstances. But I guarantee you, I guarantee you, the moment you submit and you say, no, I'm going to do what God wants me to do. 
I'm I'm going to allow the Lord to be both my judge and my jury. Hey, whatever persecution you experience, it's going to be worth it. You might not think so. Sometimes Christians are deprived of justice. Sometimes they face hostility. You remember what Jesus said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Jesus makes it sure, certain that if you're persecuted or reviled because you're an idiot, there's no value in that because you're a jerk. There's no value in that. There is value And being persecuted because you decided to do the right thing. You decided to do the noble thing. You decided to do the God-honoring thing. Jesus said, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And then he says these remarkable words. Rejoice and be glad. What? You want me to actually be happy about this? Not because you're experiencing persecution. He says, rejoice and be glad because your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This week I was reading a story about a Chinese pastor named Ming Dao. He was a leader in in communist China. And in the 1960s and the 1970s, the Chinese government began to severely persecute the church of Jesus Christ. And Wang Ming Dao spent much of that time in prison for his faith. As a matter of fact, he was finally released after 23 years of incarceration. His years in prison has inspired millions of Chinese Christians. In the words of one Shanghai pastor, he wrote, quote, Wang Ming Dao proved that God existed. No one goes to jail for that long and comes out with that faith still intact if God is not real, unquote. Ming Dao writes about his experience. He says, quote, when I was put in prison, I was devastated. I was 60 years old and at the peak of my powers. I was a well-known evangelist and wished to hold crusades all over China. I was an author. I wanted to write more books. I was a preacher. I wanted to study my Bible and write more sermons. But instead of serving God in those ways, I found myself sitting alone in a dark cell. I could not use the time to write more books. They deprived me of pen and paper. I could not study my Bible to produce more sermons. They had taken it away. I had no one even to witness to as the jailer for years just pushed my meals through a hatch. Everything that had given me meaning as a Christian worker had been taken away from me. And I had nothing to do. Nothing. Except... To get to know God. And for 20 years. That was the greatest relationship I have ever known. But the cell. Was the means. 
Here's his advice to believers. Quote, I was pushed into a cell, but you'll have to push yourself into one. You have no time to know God. You need to build yourself a cell so that you can do for yourself what persecution did for me. Simplify your life and know God. For some of you, you will do it voluntarily. And for some of you, you won't do it voluntarily at all. God will have to put you in time out. The Lord will have to put you in a place where you have nothing to do except to know him and to love him and to pray for him. What a lesson for us. Jeremiah finds himself in a similar cell. He isn't there because he's done something wrong, but because he's done something right. Sometimes the Lord will take remarkable ways to get our attention, won't he? He will speak to us loudly and then he will whisper to us softly. Are you allowing the Lord to provide opportunities to love him and to trust him? By the way, financial difficulties, illness, disease, distress, family problems, school problems, broken relationships, immoral behavior, unjust decisions, strong temptations. You might be clouded by a number of different things that are competing for your affections and your attention and your resources. And God wants you to just pause and listen to what he has to say. And ask you a question. Do you trust him? Are you holding on to his promises? Do you believe that he will deliver you from trial and tribulation and misfortune? His deliverance doesn't always take the form that we would wish. Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. And if it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will receive you to myself. So that where I am, you will be also. When Jeremiah is in this prison, it looks dark and difficult and hopeless. It doesn't seem like he has a whole lot to look forward to except the judgment of God. And in verse 6, look what it says. He's exercising confident faith in times of trouble. And this is going to be important for each and every one of you because he's going to hear from God. And God is going to say something illogical. It doesn't make sense on the surface. Look what it says. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Behold... Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, will come to you saying, buy my field, which is in Anathoth. This is Jeremiah's hometown. For the right of redemption is yours to buy it. By the way, Hanamel means God has taken pity. We don't know anything about him or the uncle other than what is told us in this particular passage. The Lord reveals to Jeremiah that his cousin is going to come and his cousin is going to come and he's going to visit him in prison and he's going to ask Jeremiah, I need you to purchase the family property problem. The Babylonian army has already taken possession of the outside provinces and for all intents and purposes, 
They're going to occupy it and do with it as they please. It says in verse 8, Then Hanamel, my uncle's son, came to me in the court of the prison, according to the word of the Lord, and said to me, Please buy my field that is in Anathoth, which is in the country of Benjamin, for the right of inheritance is yours, and the redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself. Then I knew that it was the word from the Lord. So here's the, the part of the deal. He's in prison. The word of the Lord shows up. God speaks to him and says, This is going to happen. And sure enough, it happens. By the way, that's a clue that God is speaking to you. When the Lord shows up and says, this is going to happen, and then it happens, you can be pretty much assured. You're like you're in the twilight zone. You're going, oh, oh, my God. I'm, no offense. Oh, my God. God is speaking to me. He's revealing to me stuff that's going to happen. And then it, in fact, happens. And then this strange request. They've seized the property. Jeremiah's family is probably fighting for survival. He is in prison. There's a temporary lull. I'm going to suggest to you that the Egyptian, um, or the, the Babylonian forces have withdrawn in order to face the Egyptians. But even though there's this lull, we're not told why Hanamel offers to sell the property. We don't know if he's at the end of his rope. We don't know if he's run out of resources. We don't know why he wants to give up the property. He may have just wanted to get rid of it. Have a fire sale, so to speak. Who wants to own property when you're occupied by a foreign enemy? It may have been a ruse. He may have been one of his cousin's enemies. He might be one of those people in Anathoth who don't believe Jeremiah, who sees him not as a prophet, but as a traitor. It could be a trick. If Jeremiah refuses to purchase the property, then everyone would know that he's a false prophet and he doesn't really believe his own message. The rights of redemption are outlined in Leviticus chapter 25, verses 25 through 34, where the law simply states that the property is supposed to remain in the family. And when a family member needed money or he needed to sell a piece of property, he was supposed to offer it to the nearest family member in what was known as the right of redemption. And it becomes a type and a picture of Jesus Christ, the Lord, who is our near kinsman. He's a human being like you. He has the right, according to heaven, to purchase you back for the crimes that you've committed. We don't really know why he's doing this. We don't really know very much about Jeremiah's personal finances. But we're left with the impression that he receives support or he's been able to somehow retain support. We also learn that in siege conditions, when the economy is collapsing and when an enemy is trying to overwhelm you, the last thing you want to hold on to is physical property. You know what the people in Jerusalem really want? They want bread. Who in their right mind is going to take the money that they need to survive and purchase a piece of property that they're never going to be able to use? But the prophet ignores his own personal needs. He disregards his own future. And he purchases the property. 
So I bought the field from Hanamel, the son of my uncle, who was in Anathoth, and weighed out to him in money 17 shekels of silver. Now, you guys know that I'm a coin geek and that I love coin collecting. And so, unfortunately, because I am me, I know that in the 6th century, coins don't exist. So what was money in the 7th century? When Jeremiah is being incarcerated, it's blocks of gold and blocks of silver. He's paying cash. He weighs out 17 pieces of silver. And at this point in time, a shekel is a weight or a measure. And I'm going to suggest some, something else to you. That the silver that he uses to purchase the property, and he signs and he seals the deed... I'm going to suggest something to you. I'm going to suggest that this isn't a fire sale, that this is the full price that you would pay in peacetime conditions. This isn't a good deal. This isn't so I can make money down the road. It literally says in the original language, seven shekels, ten pieces. Again, it's a weight and a measure. And the weight and the measure gives us an idea of the extent of the property. He says, and I signed the deed and sealed it and I took witnesses and weighed the money on the scales. James Hyatt gives this summary, quote, the text of the deed was written twice on a single sheet of papyri with a small space left blank between the two copies. The sheet was then cut through with a blank space to half of its width. Then the upper half was rolled, folded over itself, and tied with thin strips of papyri, holes being made in the middle of the sheet to receive them. And the seal was placed on the strips. This was the sealed deed. It was a preserved permanent record. The lower half of the papyri sheet was then rolled up, and this roll was bent under the sealed copy and attached to it. This was the open copy which was consulted at any time without breaking the seal. Note what it says in verse 11. So I took the purchase deed. What? Didn't you have to get your credit score and didn't you have to go through? No, and in that culture and society, you took the purchase deed, both that which was sealed according to the law and the custom and that which was open. And I gave the purchase deed to Baruch, the son of Neriah. Now, this is the first mention of Baruch, but he is an important person. He is Jeremiah's personal secretary and assistant. Baruch is the guy who basically seems to be the person who will compile the sum and the substance of this scroll, Jeremiah, and make sure that it is preserved. He is the son of Messiah in the presence of Hanamel, my uncle's son, and in the presence of the witnesses who signed the purchase deed before all the Jews who sat in the court of the prison. So even though he's in jail, he's able to conduct this business, do the exchange of the property. And since he was in prison, he hands over the deed to his close friend and personal secretary, Baruch, for safekeeping. Notice something else. Jeremiah makes sure... Everyone in the court sees the transaction. He's going on record. He's going public with the truth. And what is the truth? He believes God's promises. 
Remember, the judgment is coming, but also the children of Israel are going to be scattered. They're going to be taken to Babylon, but they're going to return. That even in the midst of the judgment, there is a God who has made a promise that he is going to return the people to the land. The people will one day return. They will one day resume their activities. Why is this important for you? Because even though in times of crisis and difficulty, even in times of great personal difficulty, you need to live your life as if the Bible's true. You need to live your life as if heaven is a real place. You need to live your life. As if everything that you read and everything that you embrace and everything that you stumble upon throughout the Bible, you begin to understand it is true. The promises of God are true. The the, the principles of God are true. It says, then I charged Baruch. By the way, Baruch is the Hebrew word which means blessed. Baruch Adonai Elohenola. Baruch is has a brother. His name is Sariah. We learn that if you read ahead in Jeremiah chapter 51, verse 59, uh, Sariah, his brother, is the quartermaster to the king. The quartermaster is an old word. Maybe some more mature people in the audience will know what a quartermaster is if you've ever been in the army or the armed services. This is the person who supplies the needs of the household. And in verse 14, it says, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, take these deeds, both this purchase deed, which is sealed and the deed, which is open and put them in an earthen vessel that they may last many days. Note that expression that they may last many days. Jeremiah's purchase is a vote of confidence for the future. There's a God who's living in the future, who's going to make sure that all of the promises that he's made will come true. That's part of the point. Someone once said that. That every time a baby is born, it's God's vote of confidence that, hey, there's still some time left. Jeremiah, and I want you to get this, Jeremiah is telling a despairing people that the Jews will one day return to their land and live in a place of security and peace. And do you realize that that's exactly what happens when you live your life as if the Bible is true? When you model the truth about the principles and the power and the presence of God to your children, to your husband, to your wife, to your family members. To the world in which you live. The trials, the suffering, the problems that you're going to be facing, you're going to face them in one of two ways. With the deep confidence that what God says is true. Or you're going to live your life just like everybody else. It says in verse 15, for thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall be possessed again in this land. This is Jeremiah's way of saying, hey, I believe in the future. I believe in the promises of God. 
And then there's this unshakable faith through confident prayer. Look what it says in verse 16. Now, when I had delivered the purchase deed to Baruch, the son of Neriah, I prayed to the Lord saying, and I'm going to read. Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. There's nothing too hard for you. You have show, you show loving kindness to thousands and repay the iniquity of the fathers into the bosom of their children after them. The great, the mighty God, whose name is the Lord of hosts. You are great in counsel and mighty in work for your eyes are open to all the ways of the sons of men to give everyone according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. You have set signs and wonders in the land of Egypt to this day and in Israel among other men. And you have made yourself a name as it is this day. You have brought your people Israel out of the land of Egypt with signs and wonders, with a strong hand and an outstretched arm. And with great terror, you have given them this land of which you swore to their fathers to give them a land flowing with milk and honey. And they came in and took possession of it. But they have not obeyed your voice or walked in your law. They have done nothing of all that you commanded them to do. Therefore, you have caused all this calamity to come upon them. Look, the siege mounds, they have come to the city to take it. And the city has been given into the hand of the Chaldeans who fight against it because of the sword and famine and pestilence. What you have spoken has happened there. See it. And you have said to me, O Lord God, buy the field for money and take witnesses. Yet the city has been given into the hand of the Chaldeans. In this prayer, Jeremiah acknowledges seven facts about the power of God. Follow along. Number one, fact number one, God created the universe. Since he created the universe, there's nothing too hard for him. The same God who created the heavens and the earth from one end to the other. Is there anything that he cannot do? Number two, God uses his power to show love and execute justice. Number three, God's power is revealed by his nature and by his name. Number four, God's power is revealed in his mighty works and his great purposes. Number five, God's power sees the ways of all people and then rewards them according to what they actually do. Number six, God's power is revealed in his miraculous dealings throughout history. And number seven, God's power has brought the present judgment on the people because of their rebellion and their disobedience. You show loving kindness to thousands. You repay the iniquity of the fathers into the bosom of their children after them. The great, the mighty God, whose name is the Lord of hosts. You are great in counsel and mighty in work for your eyes are open to all the ways of the sons of men. There's nothing, there's nothing, there's nothing that's hidden from God. There's nothing that he's ignorant of. There's nothing that he's not aware of. 
You've made, you brought your people Israel out of the land. He appeals to the past with signs and wonders, with a strong hand and an outstretched arm and with great terror. You have given them this land of which you swore to the fathers to give them a land flowing with milk and honey. Do you understand his prayer? Here's what he's praying. God did everything he promised in the past. How could you possibly have come to the conclusion that he would neglect you in the present? Or ignore you in the future. And they came in and took possession of it. Look what it says. But. I should circle that one and add it to my collection of big butts in the Bible. It's adversative. It means it's about to contrast what was just simply said. They have not obeyed your voice or walked in your law. They have done nothing of all that you commanded them to do. You made promises and you kept them. They made promises. And they broke them. Sound familiar? Does it sound like anybody you know? Lord, you made all these promises to me. And you kept them. And I made all of these promises to you. And I broke them. Look what it says. They've not obeyed your voice. They've not walked in your law. They've done nothing at all that you commanded them. Therefore, you've caused all this calamity to come upon them. Be sure that your sin will find you out. God is not mocked what a person sows that also they will reap. Look, the siege mounds. Here's what Jeremiah is doing is he's praying. He's pointing out the siege mounds that are surrounding the city. For those of you who've been to Jerusalem, you know that it's on a, a Almost like on a pinnacle and there are deep caverns all around the city. So they build these mounds in order to to breach the walls. Look, look, he says, look at them. They've come to the city to take it and the city has been given into the hand of the Chaldeans who fight against it because of the sword and the famine and the pestilence. What you have spoken has happened. In other words, God said, I'm going to judge you. No, you're not. Yes, I am. Verse 25. And you've said to me, oh, Lord, God, buy the field for money and take witnesses. Yet the city has been given into the hand of the Chaldeans. Do you understand this prayer? Lord. You told me to buy this field. And it makes no sense whatsoever. Why should I buy something? What if the Lord spoke to you? And he said, I want you to buy a house, but you're never going to live in that house. You're laughing because of how absurd that seems. But imagine if the Lord said to you, you're not going to live in it, but your grandchildren are going to live in it. You're not buying it for you. You're purchasing it for them. What a great prayer. Jeremiah praises the Lord's power. He says that there's nothing too hard. He acknowledges his love. He's the Lord of hosts, his power to execute his purposes. And I want you just for a moment to pause. And ask yourself this question. What can I learn? From Jeremiah's prayer. And what is it about his prayer That I can adopt for my own. I'm going to give you just a couple of quick thoughts. Number one. The promises of God should provoke prayer. 
The moment that you open up your Bible and you begin to read and you see the promises of God in the Bible, it should provoke you to go, that's for me, Lord. Lord, you've made a promise to me that you would love me, that you would be with me, that you would forgive me. The Lord can't deny himself. And by the way, the Lord loves it when you pray his promises. The Lord loves it when you pray a prayer. Lord, this is what it says in the Bible, and I just want to honor you and pray it back to you and remind you of what you've already said. Prayer, in part, becomes the opportunity... To hold God to his promises. Not that you're manipulating him. You can't manipulate him. He delights in doing what he's promised he would do. The Lord can't deny himself. Prevailing prayer pleads the promises of God. And prevailing prayer confesses our unworthiness. And then prevailing prayer is specific. Jeremiah praises the power of God. He acknowledges that God really knows. And that things are going to turn out exactly the way that he says that it's going to. When he says the siege ramps are all around the city. And the Babylonian army is about to conquer the city. Do you know what he's praying in verse 24? The city's doomed. Now, this is the hard part. And I'm okay with that. Because you have a promise that you've made. He closes the prayer and admits that he doesn't understand why God wants Jeremiah to purchase the field during this time of judgment. In other words, here's what Jeremiah is saying. He is a prophet of God. He is in jail for his faith. He prays the prayer. You've asked me to do something and I don't understand all of the implications of what you're asking me. But I'm going to do it. Would you be so bold to pray to the Lord? And he speaks to you concerning what he wants. Would you be so bold as to say, I'm not going to do what you want. Well, why won't you do what I want you to do? I don't understand the meaning behind it. Does it shock you and surprise you that you don't know everything that God knows? Well, let me be the first to help you out. Having been a person who has come to full grips with the fact that God doesn't always feel obligated to tell us why he's doing what he's doing. But I guarantee you that it's always for a good reason. It's always in your best interest. It's always for his glory. In Hosea chapter 14 too, it says, seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his face Continually. That's what it says in Hosea chapter 14, verse 2. And, and Jesus says, he spoke a parable and he says that men ought always to pray and not to faint. In James 5, 13, it says, if, does any one of you suffer? Let him pray. Note what it says. Is there anyone among you suffering? Wow, I feel really bad for you. Or I'm sorry to hear that. James says, Is any one of you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Is anyone sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. Haven't you ever wondered what the prayer of faith is? What is the prayer? It's. The prayer prayed 
that rises from an uncondemning heart. In 1 John chapter 3, if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. And whatever we ask, we receive of Him because we keep His commandments and we do those things that are pleasing in His sight. What is the prayer of faith? It's a prayer that says, I am going to pray from a clean heart, pure heart, undefiled heart. I'm going to pray from a heart that rises from an uncondemning heart that recognizes the will of God, that rests on the promise of God, that relies on the purpose of God, that reckons on the power of God, that responds to the spirit of God and then rejoices in the answer from God. But we'll save the Lord's reply. For next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Lord we do pray. And Lord if there is anyone. Who, whose heart is condemning them. Lord I pray that you would speak to them. That you're greater than their heart. You're greater than the condemnation. And you're greater than the guilt. Lord I pray for the person who. Wants to know the will of God. And wants to rest in the promise of God. And wants to rely on the purpose of God. And wants to respond to the spirit of God. Lord, we know that you won't speak to us unless we let those things that are hindering us go away. Lord, we know that Jeremiah finds himself in a horrible and a difficult place. But even in the most horrible and difficult place, he's willing to hear from you. He's willing to allow you to speak to him. He's willing to allow you to instruct him on something that seems ridiculous and contradictory on the surface, but in the end is meaningful. That sometimes the Lord will speak to us about plans that he has. Not necessarily for our future, but for the future of our children, for our children's children. Lord, we pray that we would be open. Lord, we pray that we would be obedient. Lord, we pray that we would be strengthened for the task at hand. Lord, give us the ability to hear from you so that we can honor you. And Lord, I pray for that person who finds themselves in their own private prison. Lord, I pray that they would use the time wisely to get to know you. To know you in your love and in your mercy and in your grace and in your strength and in your patience. Lord, we thank you that you're so gracious and kind and merciful. You forgive thousands. Lord, we pray that we would be reckoned among them. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's.